If anything, writers have more of an obligation to not be political, in the sense to be counter-political or trans-political, meaning to remind us that there's something else than this fucking politics that we're all being asphyxiated by. So, and this idea that, like, you shouldn't write about the personal at a time like this, it's like, it's always the time to make art, and it's always the time to protest against injustice, and one thing doesn't negate the other. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast, Season 3. We are back from summer break. I was going to wait until Labor Day, but I decided to come back a week early because I just couldn't stay away. I hope you have all enjoyed your summers. I have been cooking up a lot of new projects that I want to tell you about. The voice you just heard is that of William DeRezowitz, who is this week's guest. He's a returning guest. And this is a kind of wild interview. But before we get to that, I want to explain a couple of things that are changing about the show. Actually, not really about the show, but about the way you can support it. As you probably know, we've built over the last few years a really healthy support on Patreon. At the risk of ruining that health, I have decided to move the locus of that support over to Substack, to the Substack platform. I think it'll be a better forum for comments and for communication with me and just community building in general. If you have been a Patreon supporter, you've probably already been notified about this change. I'm making it as painless as possible for you. And uh, needless to say, I'm really grateful uh, to you for coming along with me. So you can find this new stuff. You can find everything at megandaum.substack.com. And if you can't remember how to spell my name, I'm sure you can just go in there and type my name as best you can, along with the unspeakable, and you'll find it soon enough. As before, paid subscribers will get things like early ad-free access to the podcast, access to bonus content of which there is a lot in the first couple of episodes this season, I should say, as well as the chance to come to our Zoom hangouts. It will also give you uh, some special perks related to my new podcast. Yes, a second podcast. Good God. My new podcast with Sarah Hader. That is also on Substack, and it's called A Special Place in Hell. And basically, it's uh, the two of us saying a lot of unsayable things about the culture especially as it pertains to women through the lens of our 20-year age difference, not saying who's older. So there is that. Finally, and this is pretty big, I am going to go back to writing some personal essays. You know, the things I built my whole career on. Essays about being uh, me in this moment in time. And you might even see yourself in some of them. And if you become a paid subscriber on the Substack, you will get to read them. So there you go. Okay, next thing. You've probably heard me talking about my project, The Unspeak Easy. This is an intellectual community for free-thinking women. I am still working on the online community portion, but I can tell you that there will be two retreats this fall, real-life in-person retreats in the Northeast. 
The first is in late September in Vermont, and I'm pretty sure it is sold out. But the second one will be in Stony Point, New York, October 25th through 28th. That's about 40 minutes from New York City. You can learn more about the retreats and how they work and the whole concept behind them by going to theunspeakeasy.com and joining the mailing list. I'll also be making announcements about the Unspeaky on the Substack. In fact, all of my announcements about writing courses, retreats, stuff I published, anything at all will come through the Substack newsletter. No more having like 12 different websites. So megandaum.substack.com. Got it? Okay. This week's guest is William DeResowitz. Bill is an award-winning essayist and critic and the author of the best-selling book, Excellent Sheep. He was on the podcast in the fall of 2020 to talk about his last book, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. And he's back to talk about a new collection, The End of Solitude. I have to say, this interview is kind of unlike any I've ever done here. It's kind of intense pretty personal. We talk about Bill's new book, but we also talk about what's transpired for both of us, creatively and professionally, since the last time he was on. In fact, portions of it seemed so personal that I have taken them out and saved them for the bonus content. So if you want to hear that stuff and you're a paid subscriber, you'll go to Substack and listen to a version that has about half an hour of extra stuff at the end. Good stuff, I should say, but kind of unplugged. That said, even the regular public version of this interview is kind of raw in places. Bill says some crazy controversial things, including things about his dislike for certain beloved legendary public radio figures. We also talk about the state of writing, of reading, of teaching, of thinking, why there's so much intellectual cowardice and academia. There's a lot here. There's even a, a faint cameo barking appearance from Hugo toward the end. So with that, here is my second unspeakable conversation with William Derezowitz. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for having me back. You were last here in November of 2020. Does that sound right? Sounds about right. A few months after my last book came out. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a long time ago. Now, this podcast was only a few months old at that time. And we talked about your book, The Death of the Artist, which had to do with how difficult and actually mostly impossible it's become for creative people professional creative people, working artists, to survive, given the realities of the current marketplace. I have to say, that was a surprisingly moving episode. Because um, it's personal, right? A, a lot of people wrote to me. Yeah, and a lot of people wrote to me to say that they were both saddened and sort of soothed by listening to you talk about how it's almost not worth it anymore. Yeah, it was personal to me, but a lot of people in the audience... Uh, really were, were quite taken with it. That's really nice. That's nice to hear. And I should say in the intervening two years, we've both been conducting field uh, research on this question. You mean in the first person? <laughs> in the first person. In the interim, you have put out this new book, The End of Solitude, which 
is a is a collection. Does it span about a decade or or more? What's the what's the time span? Um, most of them are from twenty seven two thousand seven or later. So like a decade and a half. There are a couple from the nineties, but the others are like the last fifteen years. Which is really, I mean, my career as a full time writer started in two thousand eight. So, um, I mean. That's that wasn't the criterion, but it's when I started to write a lot more, and I also think that my writing got better. So, what what was it like to go back and go through those pieces? Because so much has changed, just about the way people write, the way people read, the way people think about reading and writing. Like, was it speaking of since we've opened this conversation talking about uh, feeling saddened? Was it like sad at all? Well. <sighs> I mean, to be honest, I've, I have not adjusted my writing with an eye to how people read and write now. Oh, yeah, me not, neither. Yeah, which is, not, which is not professionally that helpful, although I was speaking with someone the other day who said, you know, the days when you can write a 3,000-word book review are over. And I said, I didn't write 3,000-word book, book reviews. I wrote 6,000-word book reviews. But it's true that I haven't been able to do that anymore. So it, some changes are being forced on me. But I mean, mainly I just, you know, I mean, it's not worth it for me to do this unless I'm doing the kind of writing that I want to do. It's like, why play a game that you don't want to win? So I'm just kind of still doing the same thing. And insofar as my writing has changed, it's because, you know, I'm aware of what I sound like and trying to just make myself sound better. You know, when I go back 15 years ago, when I was still an academic or just finished being an academic, it's not that I wrote like an academic because, you know, that, that's horrible, impenetrable stuff. But it's like, it's like the way, it's like I was still, there was still a relationship between the way I wrote then and the way a college student writes, like a, too, a little too sophisticated, the sentences are maybe needlessly complex. And over the years, I kind of unlearned those habits and became, I think, a more direct writer. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of the pieces in this book have to do about teaching and about your relationship to your students' writing, and especially the the title essay, the the end of solitude. That's from that's from two thousand nine, right? Right. I was really moved because you 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 titled the essay "The End of Solitude," and you talk about how writing well, I guess, takes, you say it takes a willingness to be unpopular. And the last thing to say about solitude is that it isn't very polite. So what do you mean by that? Well, just to be clear, I, I wasn't talking about writing per se, but I was talking, I mean, you know, when I talk about solitude, I'm talking about, you know, being an individual who knows where the world stops and they start. Like being able to draw that barrier, that boundary between you and other people. And, you know, I know it's a cliche, but like think for yourself, hear yourself think, mm -hmm. right? So why does it take a willingness to be unpopular? Because one of the, th I mean, you know, it's, it's much more comfortable to say the things that everybody likes to hear. I mean, whether that's as a writer or just in your personal life. And I think if you say those things enough times, you start to believe them and you forget that they're not true, you know? And that can even just be like, never mind a political issue. I mean, that can just be, 
you know, the kind of polite lies that lubricate social behavior, which is not to say that I don't tell those, but like, I think my friends know that if they ask me a question, they're, they're, li- they're more likely to get an honest answer than they would be from other people, which maybe just means that some of them don't ask me certain questions, but that's fine. Yeah, well, I was going to work up to this, um, but maybe it's better to just jump right into it. It's it from what I have observed, and I don't know you well, but it seems like you have undergone a bit of a, a bit of an intellectual maybe shift since we last spoke and and you last published your book. I mean, you're talking about your friends asking asking you questions, and they know they're going to get an honest answer. What kind of questions are we talking about? Oh, okay. So you seem to be hinting at sort of, you know, political or more than hinting. I don't have that issue with my friends. I mean, I hear you and other quote unquote heterodox podcasters talk about how this can be a problem where you lose friends or you sense that you're losing friends. Um, my friends are either people who I, who kind of who basically feel as I do, maybe not identical to I do, but to the way I do, but we can converse very comfortably. In fact, it's cathartic because we can talk to each other about this. Or there are people who, quite frankly, are not very political people. I mean, they're liberal, they have opinions, but they're not like, they're not psychologically enmeshed in the culture wars. So it's not like we have to dance around topics. Okay. But you have changed your thinking. I mean, I was asking yes. about your, your friends just as a sort of segue into this, because you, you did, you know, you you are now publishing pieces in Unheard, uh, the British publication. That's U-N-H-E-R-D. And I'm not sure that you would have... The, the End of Solitude does not contain a lot of pieces from Unheard. Let's just put it that way. Correct. Unheard, Quillette, <laughs> Common right. Sense, The Barry Weiss, Liberties, Leon Weasel yeah. Journal. Yeah. Listen, I, I know you're... Uh, not to embarrass you, but you know that I wrote a piece that came out in, in Unheard, because it was canceled by the place that I, public, I wrote it for, uh, that's about how you helped bring me out of the closet to myself. So, but to be clear, I don't, by, by expressing these quote-unquote heterodox opinions, but I, it's really important for me, I'm glad you give me the chance to say this, it's really important for me to stretch that I don't think that my, it's not like my political core has changed. I don't think that I'm any more conservative or even centrist than I used to be. It's just that, I mean, quite frankly, I think the progressive left has changed. You know, I, I consider myself a progressive in the Bernie Sanders sense. Uh, you know, focuses on the economy. It's about redistribution. It's sort of the, the model is like, you know, Denmark or France, you know, high tax, high uh, public spending state. and. Um, the way the you know, I mean, we all know how the progressive left has shifted. I mean, it's these cultural and identity obsessions go back a long way, but they've really come to the fore. They've broken out of the campus uh, menagerie, and they've now taken over. Yeah. One of the things, I guess I didn't draw this connection perfectly explicitly, but I have a piece in there. It's a piece that I've been waiting to write for a long time. One of the new pieces in the collection called Why I Left Academia parentheses, since you're wondering, right? And it's about, you know, I, I look back on my whole time in graduate school and at Yale as a professor, but especially graduate school, like the kind of shit that we now call wokeness now 
I encountered in a different form and under different names when I got to graduate school in 1989. And I thought it was ridiculous then. So it's in some ways, it's just like I've never, I've been thinking some of this for a long time. Well, and this is something that comes up a lot here. It was contained, though, within academia. It wasn't, there was the sense that while we're living in a bubble and this all, this is by definition academic. This, this discourse is an academic exercise. And there was, and a lot of the, you know, what we call politically incorrect, that it was an in-joke among the left, right? It was kind of like a way of making fun of ourselves. That's how it started. It was a way for progressive students to make fun of even more doctrinaire and extreme other progressive students. So why did you leave academia? Tell us about that piece and, and what is behind a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, the honest answer is that I left because I didn't have a choice. And it had really nothing to do with, certainly with my politics. I, I went to graduate school. I got a, a non-tenured position at Yale. And like anyone who gets a junior position, assistant professor, untenured at a place like that, you don't expect to stay because they only tenure people who are already acknowledged world leaders in the field. So you expect, I expected to stay there a few years, publish, and find a job somewhere else, which is what I saw people ahead of me in that department doing. But I made a fundamental mistake. I knew what I was, I knew that I was making this mistake, but I, I wanted to be a professor primarily to teach undergraduates. That's what I loved doing. That's what I thought was important to do. Um, I really wasn't, I didn't really believe that much in doing academic writing, especially in the field of English literature, because I didn't, you know, aside from the fact that it's so esoteric, I just didn't think that it did much good for anybody. So I, I made the mistake of spending more time than I absolutely had to on my teaching, a lot more time. And I also was already a freelance writer in graduate school. So I continued to do freelance writing. I started writing book reviews and essays and so forth, which is, I think some people don't understand, you get zero credit for that. You know, writing a book review for the New York Times Book Review not only doesn't get you any credit as an English professor, it's actually a negative. I know. Isn't that remarkable? Is it because they're just jealous? Like, think, it's like yeah. you're slumming. If you're writing for the New York Times, you're slumming if you're an academic. I think it's, I do think it's partly envy because every academic, I, I had a professor who said to me that, um, uh, Columbia professor, that um, as the, when, the MacArthur, when the MacArthur prizes are about to come out, all of his colleagues sit by their phone because they all think they're public intellectuals. And very, and almost none of them are, but they, but when, you know, but it's that, but it's also, I mean, you know, uh, departments and universities are ranked and are given grants and, you know, get all their prestige brownie points through academic research, peer reviewed research in academic journals. And that's the only thing that counts. So when they see you doing something else, I mean, winning a teaching award Somebody literally said winning a teaching award can be, is the, the kiss of death at tenure time. Really? Oh, because they, want, they don't want you to actually bother with, with teaching. because They it's don't want just... you to do anything other than your research. And the savvy people make sure that at least until they get tenure somewhere, they don't. 
which is why, you know, one of the reasons that college teaching is so abysmal and always has been. Right. And this is something that you've written about historically. You wrote at least one book about this phenomenon in in a certain way. Yeah. Excellent Cheap is partly about that. So, I mean, are you inclined, because I really struggle with this because I don't want to sort of sit around and saying, well, they don't know how to, they, these kids now, they don't know how to write. They don't know how to think. The, this, the university system is basically just a, some kind of circle jerk, yeah. cl- you know, uh, country club. But at the end of the day, does it actually matter? Because I spent a lot of time complaining about the way people, the way there are no more editors, for instance. Okay, like everything seems to be up. And I want to talk to you about this because you write very specifically about the way writing, I think you, you write about the students that you realize that they thought of writing as something that just happens, <laughs> that they had never been asked to pay attention to their sentences as conscious constructions. And you were talking about classroom writing. And what I thought about, frankly, was Substack writing when I read that. Should No, I, but then I think, well, should we care? Does it matter? Because this is the kind of writing that they're going to be doing anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it reflects the kind of reading that people do, which is very, very hasty. So aren't you kind of just wasting your time if you actually make your writing good? And the answer is, yeah, in some sense, you are wasting your time. But um, look, aside from the fact that I think it's immoral to like not teach your students how to write, also, I mean, clear writing is clear thinking, right? I mean, when you're teaching students, when you're teaching undergraduates how to write their papers, what you're really teaching them is how to think. And that's the real problem, right? And in that same piece, I say they also didn't know how to think, right? Right. Uh, in other words, in other words they, they had no, they, they show no evidence of metacognitive ability. They couldn't think about their thinking. So they couldn't see when their terms weren't clear, when they were contradicting themselves, et cetera. So that's why I think it matters. Mm-hmm. And this is ostensibly the most highly educated generation in history. I mean, they've gotten, if they get to Claremont College, for instance, which is one of the places you have written about teaching, they, these are the, the top tier of the elite. They could not possibly have had more tutors, more engaged parents. Uh, and, and yet here we are. You know, let me ask you this. As, as a teacher, how do you teach people to think? You, uh, it takes a lot of time. You work very closely with their writing. To uh, first of all, you you have them write. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing uh, the number of pages that students have been asked to write has been that our students are asked to write has been declining and declining over the decades. Um, I've you know I've spoken to a lot of schools, and in some places, students will tell me that they that they're hardly asked to do any writing at all. Um, so, so that's the first thing is that you assign writing and then you, I mean, graded is the wrong word. You comment on it, you go through it very carefully and you point out all of those things. You're contradicting yourself. What do you mean by this? Your argument doesn't follow a logical sequence and you have to get, you know, you have to get really detailed and you have to do it in office hours as well, as well as on the page. And then I also t- try to do it and model it and demonstrate it and encourage it in the context of the classroom discussion. So we're talking about a work of literature, or we're talking about when I wrote a, when I taught an, a class in argument and writing argument, writing op-eds, 
you know, we would talk about the issue that whatever paper we were talking about was about, you know, uh, sex ed, whatever, should it be sex positive ed or just whatever. And so as the students are having their argument with each other to say, hey, wait a second, you know, to stop and say, can you define that a little better? Or, you know, that, I mean, that, that's what you do. But it, man, it takes a lot of work. And even if one teacher does it, like you, let's say you get it in freshman composition because you have to take freshman composition. If it's not reinforced later in college, it just kind of disappears. And so what's replaced it, in your opinion? Like what's in people's brains? What's, what's going on? Because people are, there's a lot of stimulation and they're certainly producing a lot of content, Yeah, quote unquote. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to go back to this seeming paradox, they're the most educated. And this touches on a lot of stuff that I talked about in Excellent Sheep. Largely because of the college admissions rat race, they are accumulating more and more and more credentials, right? So they're very highly credentialed. Not only do they have more degrees, but like in high school, they have more extracurriculars. They have more AP courses. In college, it's become common to double major and to keep doing tons of extracurriculars. So on paper, it looks like they have all of these credentials or semi-credentials, all these achievements. But the more of those things they do, the less well they do any one of them. And part of what's accommodated that is that the curve is getting, the grading curve, I mean, literally the grading curve is getting easier and easier. You know, grade inflation has been, you know, ridiculous in the last mm, 25 years, right? So, so you can do less and still get the same grade. And why is that? Why is grade inflation happening? Yeah, why? Literally why? Why did this come about? what people call the customer service mentality in academia, that universities, I mean, like it used to be that, you know, you really knew when you were a college student that it was the professors and the university administration in alliance against you. And, and the education was conducted on their terms. And now it's the administration and the students in alliance against the professors. So, it just, I mean, it's just easier for professors to grade, uh, to, 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 to be a more generous grader. It causes less trouble and it takes less time for them. Wow. So they're actually, that's, that's literally the reason because that, this is one of these things that comes up a lot. And I'm always really wary of going too far down this path because it just sounds like, it, it sounds like you're, it's, a, it's a kind of a blunt instrument. Like, oh, the, the students are the customers and the professors and the administrators are serving them. And um, the students, they can't, they can't stand any critique. Everything is violence. I mean, these are all the buzzwords and phrases that come up in the heterodox space, and they come up a lot in a lot less nuanced way on Fox News with Tucker Carlson. But the problem is, and this is why I love talking with you, it actually is happening. But it's happening in ways that are more layered than I really think anybody has been able to get at yet. I want to know what you think about that. Certainly, it's, it's a complex problem in the sense that it has a lot of moving parts, you know. It's not just one explanation, but um, I think the broad strokes of what I laid out in terms of, you know, great inflation, but also just the general shift in the relationship between professors and students. Let me say, let me put another piece in, right? There's been this ongoing shift from tenure-track professors to adjuncts or to 
one category people don't talk about a lot is full-time non-tenure track instructors. That's like a third of the college faculty now. So there are people who have, they're maybe they're on three-year contracts. One aspect of the customer service mentality is that those um, student evaluations that we've had for a long time are more and more important uh, in terms of how faculty are evaluated. If you have tenure or you're on the tenure track, actually nobody gives a shit about them at all. And they just pretend to. Well, you shouldn't be teaching. You shouldn't have any student evaluations, right? Because that would suggest that you're teaching. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the easiest way to get a good evaluation is not to be a good teacher. It's to be an easy grader. And if you're an adjunct and you're working term to term or you're full-time non-tenure track and you have a one or a three-year contract, you have even more incentive to be an easy grader. This is also why the faculty is so disempowered, because three quarters of the faculty are not on the tenure track. So what is the pipeline? We've got, we've got people not really getting an education in college, let alone in high school. And then we have them moving out into the world. They're in jobs, they're in offices, they're in newsrooms, they're in cultural institutions, but they're also just people in the world consuming news, consuming content, and consuming digital media that even the, the best of us have a hard time metabolizing. So are you like, how nihilistic are you about <laughs> the, this, just this entire gestalt? Look, now we, we have reached the point where I'm very wary of overgeneralizing, even to say that people aren't getting an education. I mean, it's complicated. And also I'm not saying they're getting no education, but you, you know what I'm saying. But also one thing that we really have to stipulate about higher ed is that it's a very, um, it's a heterogeneous space, right? There are many different kinds of schools and many different kinds of students. And the typical student goes to like, not only a public university, but like not one of the flagships. So it's a branch campus or it's a community college. They, they are majoring in some vocational field like business or nursing. It's a whole different situation. I think we tend to talk about elite college students. I tend to talk about elite college students. They're often very well prepared. People have been saying this for a while. They can be very well prepared in their specific specialty, like a STEM specialty. You know, part of what we, part of what people have been seeing for a while is that they don't have a broad awareness. Right. I saw this in my students at Claremont, right? Like they were all doing really well in their majors, but they couldn't think flexibly outside of that context. And a class in argument in particular, which is, like I said, writing op ed. So it's the kind of writing and thinking that you would do just as you say, as a person in the world, a news consumer, they really didn't know how to do. Like they, they, they their, their skills weren't transferable. Their analytic skills weren't transferable. And the other thing I saw, this was 2015. And I hadn't seen it at Yale, which I left in 2008. The other thing I saw was that they were being stuffed with the jargon, with what we now call wokeness. And that was the equipment they had with which to think about things. And they thought that they were thinking. But they weren't really thinking. That's really well put. They thought that they were thinking, but they're actually reciting what would you say? What's the verb? Reciting, maybe, but I mean, I, I could give them, you know, I could ask them to think about something that they hadn't thought about before, but they had a very specific and limited set of tools with which to think about it. So like, like literally the reflex, like it would come blurting out of their mouths, like patriarchy. They're like, no, 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 I'm not, 
wait, something else is going on here. So, you know, they have patriarchy and they have capitalism. I don't think one in a hundred really even knows what the word capitalism means, et cetera. Right. So power, power dynamics uh, define everything. Yes. <sighs> yeah. Hierarchies of oppression. Right. So, I mean, so much, it was such a pleasure to go back and read these pieces, but it also, again, I just, I found myself thinking about, because you talk a lot about the social media that was present around the mid-aughts. You talk about MySpace, for instance, yeah, and, no, and yeah. Facebook, and and just how, un, how the lack of presence that most people experienced even then. And now I'm reading it and it almost seems quaint. Like to go back to when there was only Facebook. Uh, so how do you reconcile that? Huh. I mean, so those essays you're referring to, which are like the first three essays in the book, were all from around 2009, 2010. I had just joined Facebook in 2008. So I was really reflecting on the changes that I saw in myself and my friends who were in their 40s, you know, but we're all, all of a sudden doing this. I think the big change since then, aside from the multiplication of platforms, but the really big change is the iPhone. Because when I was on Facebook in 2009, I was on my laptop. And when I was online at the coffee shop, I, wasn't, I couldn't be on Facebook. And now it's just, it follows us everywhere. Yeah. So do you have your phone out a lot just in your life personally? I don't. Um, I, I don't want to sound sanctimonious about this. I mean, I had to. <laughs> no, I really don't. I had to figure out how not to. I mean, I was on Facebook a lot more than I wanted to be. And I had to kind of control myself, you know, like any person who has a potential addiction. But has it affected your writing? I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. I, I don't have social media on my phone. Okay. So I'm not going to, I can check email. But I don't look at any, I don't look at Twitter. I don't, I'm, well, I'm not really, I'm barely on Facebook, but I am sitting, I spend most of my time sitting at my desk in front of my laptop. That's like probably 80% of my waking hours. I mean, that little, do you get that little um, notification that tells you how many hours your, your average screen time that week? It just uh, helpfully uh, informs you just how pathetic you have been that particular week. You know, it's the news is, is never good. But I can't write at all the way I used to. I mean, I will flip the second that my that I can't think of the next word to write, I'll flip over and look at Twitter. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. It's terrible. You should be deeply ashamed. <laughs> I'm, I'm admitting it here, but I'm looking for you to absolve me or agree with me. I, ab I, mean, I, absol I absolve you. I absolve you. But here's what I do. So I, I think I never really developed a Twitter habit and I make sure not to engage with people on Twitter. I'll just go on to post stuff I've written or maybe occasionally if I read something outrageous, I'll sort of post a link. But I, I, I never engage with people on Twitter. My addiction is email. So when I'm, when I'm writing, I close my email program. I just quit my email program, and then I reward myself like like an every hour or whatever. Okay. By you know, yeah, that's that's how I do it. Okay, so that means that you're actually answering your email. Um, well, I try not to interrupt to answer, but I'm just the itch of curiosity is so intense that I have to check it. I'll only answer it uh, if you know if if it really requires an immediate answer. 
But other than that, sort of so morning and early afternoon when I write, I I don't, you know, I that's that's my rule. That's very good. So what do you write? What is your writing process like? And what do you think about what do, what do you want to write about? Huh. That's a good question. No, I've been writing, I've continued to write a lot of essays, meaning that I don't have, I'm not currently working on a book project. So The Death of the Artist came out two years ago. This collection was a very easy way to have another book because I've already written it. Yeah. I got one of those in the pipe in the pipeline too. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, right. I don't know who's going to publish it, but it's oh, like, oh, I, yeah. I got a whole book in, on my bookshelf. <laughs> it's right. It's going to take them and put them together. Yes. I actually, you know what? When I signed the contract for The Death of the Artist back in 2016, on the heels of Excellent Sheep, which was a bestseller, I got the publisher to agree to also do a collection. I don't know that they were super duper happy about it, but I got them to agree. So that, yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, when we talked two years ago, I wasn't sure if my writing career wasn't kind of dead in the water. Yeah, I, I remember. Well, I have to say, because I asked you, I think I, I think at the very end, I asked what kind of, where you saw your, your career going in like a couple of years. And you said you imagined hustling for freelance work for a couple of years and then possibly doing corporate writing. And I asked what that meant. Oh my God. <laughs> I did say that, didn't I? And yeah, I went back and listened to this. And then I asked what that meant. And you said, well, you know, like some of my colleagues and peers have gotten involved in like business writing or, you know, there's all Somebody there's a whole I interviewed world. for the death of the artist was telling yeah, me Yeah, right. This. So you should, you could just fo the follow from. the yeah. lead of your, of your book subjects. But yeah, no, I thought that was really um, uh, poignant. So <laughs> yeah, you, you were, you were thinking that you weren't going to write again, but obviously that's absurd because we're, we're all writers. You, we, we can't help it. But I'm curious what that has meant for you in the, you know, the year and a half since we've spoken. So part of w why I was so worried was that the death of the artist came out in the summer of 2020 and nobody wanted to talk about anything except the pandemic, the election and the racial justice uprising. And so it got almost no coverage. So I thought, you know, and I had to write the book. I had basically stepped away from freelancing for about three years. And I didn't know if the places that I'd been writing for, specifically Harper's and The Atlantic, would want me to write for them again. And it turns out that it seems like they don't. <laughs> I mean, they haven't said that. And I hope, I hope that it's not permanently true. But let's just say they haven't commissioned anything or responded to my pitches in a positive way. And we, you know, we can, whatever that means for whatever reason. And at the time, I, I couldn't, I, I, I wasn't aware of any other place that would pay decently and let me do something like the kind of writing I wanted to do. And right around that time, Leon Weaseltier started publishing Liberties. And all the things that we just talked about, Unheard, Quillette, Barry Weiss's Substack Common Sense, I don't know that any of them existed then. Certainly, I wasn't aware of them. Oh, they did. You just you just weren't hip to it. Yeah, Quillette was no, totally Barry around. No, didn't exist, and I'm no, pretty Barry's sure didn't, didn't exist. exist. Uh, I don't think I don't know. existed either. Quillette definitely, definitely okay. did. Right, right. But they they weren't on my they weren't on my radar screen. Yeah. So um, there was this whole 
new field that's opened up for me that's been really great. Uh, and I should say, since you know this is our this is our safe and honest space, that very fortunately, last summer, about a year ago, someone I know, I can't talk about this too much, someone I know approached me to do a ghostwriting project for them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been doing for the last year to supplement. Hi. Just taking a quick break here to say that this is the point in the conversation where things got more personal. So as I mentioned, I've taken it and made it part of the bonus content that you can hear if you become a paid subscriber to the podcast's new Substack page. You can find that at megandown.substack.com and you'll just click the bonus content version of the podcast and get about half an hour more of conversation at the end. We spend some time talking about the challenges of making a living and the creative economy today, the way the marketplace is obsessed with identity categories, that kind of thing. I also talk about why I didn't do much writing this past year, which is going to change. And so that is where the conversation picks up from here. You said the publishers, major publishers, commercial publishers don't want this stuff anymore. Okay. Well, we know that there are all kinds of things that can't be said in what, for lack of a better word, we'll call the mainstream media. And that's precisely what's, what gave rise to this alternative ecosystem of Substack and you know, Barry Weiss and the, more, the, the new prominence of places like Unheard and Quail, let's say that, because there's really an audience for that. I'm sure there's really an audience for personal essays by people who don't fit the identity categories du jour. Now, I'm not going to start a publication that, you know, that makes that available to people because I'm, you know, that that would be a, a full-time job in itself. But I think what I'm saying is, and this is one of the few reasons that I'm not completely pessimistic, is that um, when there's a need or a desire, the market will fill it. Yes. Okay. But this is what I want you to talk about. That is absolutely true. And this is what I tell students. And I mean, I'm complaining about my situation, but a lot of this is just for the, for the sake of discussion. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. However, if somebody goes with a, a book that's a more conservative imprint or they publish on their own, they might ha- there might be a big audience. They might go on Joe Rogan and talk about their essays. If they, if they do that, they will never be reviewed in the New York Times. They will not be on NPR. They will not be invited to the literary festivals. They won't be invited to teach at the summer writing conferences. The, the literary community, such as it exists, will not be interested in inviting them to the party. But maybe that's okay now, and maybe nobody cares anymore. But I kind of care. Yeah. Well, um, I was never part of that world, so it doesn't mean... I feel like you were, I, but I feel like you had a very, very respectable... But you, you, were, you walked out on stages on universities and gave talks in front of microphones. Okay, I mean, it's not really so much about my sp- particularities, but just, I mean, just to be real, I wrote Excellent Sheep and it enabled me to speak at many universities. I'm not sure that I can going to be speaking at too many more going going forward. But I I, I I mean, I was never like a writer writer, you know, I, mean, it was, I was an academic. So I was never part of that. I mean, I really, 
wasn't ever part of the literary community, uh, socially or in terms of where the places that I went. But I mean, you know, so it's easier for me to imagine not caring about that. But also, but I mean, that's not necessarily an easy thing to say to a young writer or to any writer who does care about it. Yeah. But I do think, I've never thought about this before, but you made me have this thought, which is that just as the market, just as a market has arisen on Substack and Joe Rogan and other podcasts for the, for kinds of writing that the mainstream will no longer touch, it seems inevitable to me that a, a prestige economy will also arise, or the existing prestige economy economy will have to accommodate itself to it. And I mean, if I if I'm not mistaken, I think Louis C.K. recently wrote a, a Grammy, which was amazing. Was amazing. He did that. That is amazing. Um, I think the gra- the Grammys are a little less beholden to the kind of wokeness than. I mean, would he have won an Emmy? Would he have won? Yeah, but no, but I, 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 you're absolutely right. I guess, you know, this is something that I talk about with Sarah Hader on my, on my second, on my new podcast, because she's 20 years younger than I am. And I'm always actually making the case that you're making that this is not sustainable. Enough people want quality content. They remember what it was like back when public intellectuals were actually there to say the things that nobody else was going to say. That 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 was the surprising place. They they we're going to want it back, and it's going to come back. And she doesn't think that's true at all. She thinks the institutions are hopeless. She thinks that it, we've just the, the the culture is just going off in this completely fragmented direction, and that it's this is just how it's going to be. But she doesn't remember how it was before. So I guess what I'm what I often wonder is. Do we care if the New Yorker will never be the New Yorker that we grew up with ever again? We, I mean, we only care if that writing isn't happening somewhere else, but it's not okay. happening at the New Yorker. Right? And <laughs> so. I'm not saying it's not happening. I mean, the New Yorker is very schizophrenic, though, because there is, of course, I mean, the New Yorker will always be the New Yorker. It's, there's phenomenal writing in there, but there's enough stuff online that just looks like it could be from anywhere that you're like, hmm. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I feel like the New Yorker hasn't been the New Yorker since Tina Brown took over, and that was a long time ago. Oh wow, yeah, that's a that's yeah. old school. But, but I mean, I, mean yeah. I, re- I remember the actual old New Yorker, which was a you know, which had you know, m- you know, multi ten thousand word, amazing in depth, long form journalism, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I listen. I don't know what the future is going to bring. Maybe Sarah's right. Maybe what we're saying is a little more right. But I do think that. There's probably an important distinction to be made between nonprofit and for-profit institutions, and the commercial publishers are for-profit, and they are going to have to go where the audience goes, or they'll be pushed aside by those who will, or they'll just lo- you know lose market share at a time when they don't have a lot of margin to work with. Right, right. But I mean, what do you do? I mean, maybe you spoke with some of the the artists and, and the death of the artist about this thing that happens where people say, okay, well, just because your film didn't get screened in this festival because it was deemed problematic in some way, you can just go put your your film up on YouTube, and you know, you, you don't you don't need these institutions. And you know, we sort of walk around with that premise, but the fact is that the institutions are there for a reason, and. 
and unless you are Louis C.K., uh, that really doesn't work. No, I, I mean, that's almost what my book is about. I mean, it's about a lot of things, but one of the main points that I made was that's total bullshit. Like, yes, you can put your movie up, uh, you know, but no one's going to watch it. You're not going to make any money, which means that actually you could never have even made it in the first place because you need to get funding for a movie. And even the cheapest movie costs several hundred thousand dollars. So it's bullshit. But look, Netflix has said, like, no, we're not going to let ourselves be dictated to by our wokest employees because they're obviously looking at their, the numbers that they don't let anybody else see. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And even book publishing, and maybe this is a, you're going you're to vomit when I say this. I feel like book publishing of all of those sectors is actually the one that's been least, that's been most resistant to this kind of pressure. Like they are, I feel like they are still publishing. Well, but they also will cancel a book because yeah, they their em- employees want to walk off the job. I didn't say they're great. I just said that I feel like they're better than some of the other, you know, like the universities or the pub, you know, some of the publications. Right, right. Well, you opened up your, uh, one of your recent pieces in Unheard by talking about NPR and the role that that's played in your life. Um, just it's it. And I too had you know National Public Radio was just the sort of ongoing soundtrack in my head uh, ever since I was a kid, and then at some point it started to change. And so, you know, it, since NPR is one of these institutions that, that we're talking about, venerable institutions that have really lost their luster, if not relevance, how does that feel to you? It was, um, it really was destabilizing. At, you know, when I, when I, you know, was kind of going through my, like, am I really going to stop listening to NPR? It really was, I mean, it was inconceivable. It was a major part of my identity. It's sort of pathetic to say that now, but I guess... It's natural. And then, you know, once you can think the unthinkable thought, it becomes much easier to accept. And seeing what, what NPR has done to itself, you know, makes me no, long, no longer want to have my identity bound up with it. You know, I, 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 I feel, I don't know, this is stupid, but I, I feel almost betrayed by it. I'm just glad that Robert Siegel retired when he did. I, I shudder to think. A lot. I know. Well, a lot of them. I mean, a lot of them. I don't. I always want to know what Terry Gross thinks deep down. Terry Gross is awful. Please. I feel like even before now, we're really getting into the weeds. This is amazing that you would say that. I used to really think she was cool, and she, I, she was cool. But even before wokeness, I feel like this kind of church lady censoriousness started to creep in. You know, I remember when she was talking to the photographer, uh, Sally Mann, the one who takes pictures of her naked children. Like, I, I felt that it was there. I felt like she, it was, I think it was a biography of Lou Reed where she was like, well, you know, he took heroin. It's like, yeah, he took heroin. Oh, she Lou worships Reed. Lou Reed. There's, she is the biggest Laurie Anderson Lou fangirl. But, oh, that's funny. So you think she's sort of pure, she's puritanical kind of uh, a scold? I do, I do think. And I used to say that uh, this... The saddest words in public radio were, um, this is Dave Davies. <laughs> and now I'm really Because, now I'm because he was really, subbing for, because he he was subbing good, for but Terry. Now I feel like if it's a Dave Davies episode, then at least I might get something straight and there won't all be, be this posturing. Okay, but this is remarkable. The fact that you are an author and that you would say these things publicly about Terry Gross, I, I don't, 
that's is is an absolute sign of the times. I cannot think of a, a more just a striking example of how much things have changed. I mean, she you would want all you would want was would be to get on NPR. You published a book, you want to get on Terry Gross and you want to review in the New York Times. Not the Times book review, but the the art section, the the Daily Times. Those are the two biggies. And so and to imagine that it's 2022 and here we are we both publish books. We're working writers and we're shit-talking Terry Gross. That's extraordinary. Um, you know, it hadn't even occurred to me. And I think it's because what has occurred to me is that there is no way that I would ever be on Terry Gross at this point. I did, I, I did hope with my first or second book to be on Terry Gross. But at this point, there's no fucking way. Why, though? But why? Why in your case? Um, I mean, I don't know what I'm going to publish in the future. It's true. But I feel like I'm not demographically correct. And I'm certainly not politically correct. So is she going to want to talk to me? See, I don't listen enough, but I always think that deep down she has to be tired of this. Because I think there, yeah, there are a lot of these folks that are, that secretly agree with us, but they're out there trying to keep their jobs. I mean, Here's another thing, okay? And I think I I don't I don't know very much about your life, but my understanding is that you do not have children, for instance. Okay. So I don't have kids. This gives me a tremendous advantage because I cannot tell you how many people say, "Oh, I agree with you. I have the same views. I wish I could speak out, but the fact is if I lose my job, my family will suffer. I've got a mortgage to pay. I've got college tuitions to pay and I I can't take the risk. And I only have very recently been thinking about the fact that part of the reason I'm able to do what I do without making very much money is because I don't have anyone to drag down with me. And it's a tremendous privilege. Sorry to use that word. Well, it is, it is a tremendous advantage. I'm absolutely aware of that in my case. And I don't know what, what I would be doing if I did have kids. I mean, I think when I got to the end of rope, the rope in academia, I don't know that I would have even tried to be a full-time writer because that's a ridiculous thing to do with kids. And I might have just, you know, but so absolutely, it makes it easier for me. Uh, and I do have sympathy with people who feel like, you know, I've got a mortgage, I've got kids to put through school. But someone like Terry Gross, who I'm pretty sure doesn't have kids either. And if she, and even if she did, they'd be grown by now. I mean, she must be in her 60s by now, at least. And if she really, if she really feels the way that you think she does, although I'm skeptical, but if she really does, then she has no excuse. I am not, you know, I really, I mean, those are the people, right? I don't blame the, you know, the millennials on Twitter for pressuring their employers or what it's, it's the, it's the heads of the institutions. They're the ones responsible. I know, but they will say, but I guess I, I sort of interrupted myself, but I, I think that there are a lot of uh, mid mid career, middle-aged NPR reporters and hosts who won't speak out because their kids are still, they, their kids have to get through Wesleyan. Uh, and that is a thing, but you know, let me ask you this. I mean, before, you know, we've been going for a while, but I want to make sure I, I ask you this because, you know, I had a conversation recently with some academics and I asked the question I always ask, which is, why aren't the people with tenure speaking up? Why aren't the high level administrators speaking up? They're, they're about to retire anyway. What does it matter? Th- this person I asked gave me a really 
interesting answer, but I wonder what your answer is. Yeah, remind because I remember listening to that and feeling like I wanted to shout my answer. So what was Okay, it? well, the answer was that, I mean, this sounds really glib. The answer was they want to be invited to the cocktail party. They don't want to get on the wrong side of uh, the people that they have to work with, you know, show up at the office with. And, and, you know, and the other thing I and I probably did say this, you might have heard me say this. I think people forget that most college communities are very small. It's not Boston. It's not New York City. Like you said earlier, most of the most colleges are are in college towns and that's the only game in town. So if you get ostracized by your department head or the faculty at Oberlin, uh, you're, you don't have anywhere to go. And so this person pretty much thought that that was what was driving people silencing themselves. Yeah. You know, now that I think about it, uh, I think what I wanted to shout was just, you know, most colleges are not in small places. But if you're wrong, you're wrong for the right reasons. Because college social circles, even if you're in a bigger place, they are small. Academics, their social circles tend to be other academics or just the department. And, and you know, actually, I think that that's right. I think it's different with administrators because administrators can lose their job. And they're just cowards. They're just cowards who are bet- betraying their duty. But, you know, I mean, it's also like you just get used to a level, to, you know, a level of comfort, a life, you know, a level of, I mean, university presidents make a lot of money. They often have a free, beautiful free house. Um, maybe this is what I wanted to tell, the, tell, the, tell you at, at that moment. <laughs> when you were um, shouting, shouting at the computer. When I was shouting. Um, <laughs> Academics are, uh, uh, by nature, by, by training, enormous conformists. Like, supposedly, you're, you know, it's about being an original thinker and doing original research, but actually, it's almost entirely about conforming to the intellectual paradigms that already exist. And as people have said in places, you know, in fields like medicine and others, actually, you can get a tremendous amount of resistance and not get published and get ostracized if you go against the conventional wisdom. So these are people who've just been, I mean, this is what they know. Conformity is what they know. Um, but the social thing, I mean, not, I mean, it's being ostracized by your, uh, pe- by your uh, uh, colleagues, but also I think a fear that people aren't going to take your classes and you won't have any students anymore. But you would have the cool students who, you would have the thought criminal students. I, that's what I think. But maybe there wouldn't be enough. That's what I think. Maybe there wouldn't be enough. Yeah. Yeah. But they, yeah, not that they would necessarily want to hire you. I had, a, um, I taught this class at Columbia for a couple semesters called What's Problematic? And uh, we only read problematic stuff. And I had actually come up with the idea because I was, I was at the University of Iowa as a, as a visiting uh, instructor and I couldn't get through the class. Like it was a cultural criticism class and I was teaching a bunch of stuff that I always really loved and Terry Castle and Mary Gateskill and just, you know, Christopher Hitchens a little bit, even though I knew what I was getting into with that. But, you know, I, we couldn't get through the material because there was always a problem with everything and <laughs> ended up being the name of my book. But uh, I was joking one day with uh, a couple of the more, uh, you know, with it hip students. And I said, God, you know, one of these days I'm just going to teach a class that's nothing but problematic stuff. That's all you're going to get. And then I thought, oh my gosh, that's actually a great idea. 
And I ended up uh, going uh, and teaching. I was on the adjunct faculty of the MFA program at Columbia, the, the graduate writing program. And I taught this class a couple times. And this was, you know, this was probably 2016. No, 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 no. It would have been 2017, 18, right around there. And it, it was oversubscribed. It was really full. But a couple students kind of intimated that they were worried about being seen walking in and out of the classroom. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe they were pulling my leg, but... Uh... Oh, no, no. I don't think they were. <laughs> it's so fucked up. Yeah. And I haven't... I, I don't think I would be brought back to teach that class now. I mean, so much has changed. So wait, when did you say the last time you this that class? was, let's see, because I, this what must have been the fall of 2017 that I taught it for the first time. And then I probably taught it again, either since 2018, right, right around there. Yeah. But you know what? It's another, it's another data point to what we were saying before, which is that there's a big quote unquote market. There is a big market for all of this. Um, I think, you know, I'm not optimistic that wokeness is going to collapse or that it's even peaked. But I think the reason to believe that it might someday and maybe sooner than we might otherwise think is that, you know, clearly 90% of people are just pretending. It's just like, people have said this, it's just like, you know, the, the Soviet bloc under communism. And as soon as, as soon as the wind shifts, everyone is going to, you know, um, and I think, and I think as soon as that happens, these cowardly administrators, I mean, they've got their finger in the wind all the time. Um, and then the last, the last moment is going to be that the, the, the commissars who've been driving this will suddenly, will suddenly start to claim that actually they never said any of that to begin with. That's what's going to happen. What are the things that you would really like to write about, but that still give you pause? If anything. Oh, man. Megan, if I didn't want to write about them, I wouldn't want to. I'm not going to want to talk about writing about them. I think. Come on. You um, dissed Terry Gross. You can't possibly okay, get edgier okay, than I've you've already been. I'm still a little wary about writing about um, issues of relations between men and women. Some of the things I know, some of the things that I feel, you've talked about some of this stuff, some of the things that I think we're not willing to be honest about uh, in public. Like, I think that sort of the class of professional slash feminist slash progressive women are maybe not being honest about the extent to which they still want to be supported by men. At least if they have, if they have or want to have kids, and at least for a few years when their kids are young. I don't know. Does that sound like a controversy? Was that sufficiently controversial? Well, I think it's hard for you to say as a man. This is what Sarah and I talk about on A Special Place in Hell. We talk about this a lot. Yeah, I know. I think, and, and Louise Perry, who's this really interesting writer who's come around, she has this new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's talked about a lot of this stuff, and I think she can get away with it because she's British. But um, <laughs> that's, that's another thing. So do you think that you can't talk about it be because you're a, a, a man or just what's what where's the 
trepidation. I think that's, I, yeah, I mean, that's obviously the main part of it, but I also feel like it's a deep, it's, I mean, you guys are talking about it. I think it's a deeply taboo subject because you're kind of, in a sense, you're sort of calling bullshit on feminism, which is not, I mean, which is not, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, feminism is all bullshit or people are being insincere. I just think that, you know, it's, it's just like, or, I mean, I know you've talked about this too. It's just like campus sexual assault and the role of drinking. Like you're not allowed to say, gee, maybe you shouldn't get blackout drunk. It's not your fault if you're assaulted, but just maybe you shouldn't do it. I was actually at um, an, a liberal, an elite liberal arts college uh, last year, early this year, and I was at dinner with a number of young women and others, but a number of young women, all, all of them first year, who were very passionate and, and activist about this. And I said, well, would you, um, would you be okay with enforcing the drinking age in order to deal with this problem? Since, you know, most students are under 21. And it really brought them up short, like it had never even occurred to them. And when I mentioned it, they wouldn't actually want to do it. Wow. Were they upset with you? Were they offended? Or they were just confused? I did it carefully enough. And I was at a place, it wasn't in the Northeast, that I, I managed not to trigger the response, like, are you saying that it's their fault? I was expecting that, but I, I managed to dance around it and still raise the issue. Yeah, see, I think that it's unfeminist not to acknowledge these things. I have said, you know, Mother Nature is the ultimate misogynist. You, you, you can't get around a lot of these things. Um, so to, to pretend that somehow you are not trying hard enough or that the world's against you or that there's some kind of amorphous patriarchy uh, holding you down is actually a, a betrayal of personal agency and therefore feminism. Anyway, but that's, yeah. So, so now that you say you're going to write more about yourself, what might that be? Oh, come on. Yeah, a little I, bit. You can, the, you can make something uh, up. You're gonna, you can say, I'm going to write fiction. I'm no, going to make stuff up. Oh, no, no, no. I, I realized, no, you know what? I realized that, um, I mean, like every, you know, young literary man or woman, I guess, I, I, you know, I dreamed of being a novelist. And at a certain point, I realized I just don't have the right brain to, to write fiction. I, I'm not someone who thinks in terms of stories. I don't remember stories. I'm not good at telling them. Well, that's encouraging because you still manage to write narratives, essays. I wrote one novel, you know, but it, I, think, I think in terms of ideas, and I was going around saying that, that <laughs> I, when I published that novel, I said, oh, it's an essayistic novel because it's got all these like, you know, the characters always ruminate, the narrators always ruminating. And my agent said, don't ever say that. Don't ever use that phrase ever again. I never want to hear that again. So she was right. But yeah, no, I, I think in terms of ideas and not stories, and that sounds like that's what you're saying as well. And, and I think, I mean, to the extent that anyone's interested in this distinction, I think that's the difference between a personal essay and like a, a memoiristic, an essay length piece of memoir, is that with the memoir, it, the structure is narrative. And with an essay, the structure, the, the outer frame is actually an idea that the narrative is helping you figure out and articulate. Yes, yes. That's a very good way of putting it. So what are you going to write about? Okay, but without, without being uncomfortably or prematurely self-exposing, I will say that if I'm really brave, one of the things that I 
would write about is my struggles with my own ego. Oh. And, 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 uh, and all the resentment that, you know, like, like not the fact that I haven't gotten the recognition I think I deserve, but the fact that I haven't gotten the recognition that I don't deserve. But the, you know, um, which is, I mean, it's bound up with being a writer. It's bound up with, you know, being raised by, you know, parents who expect you to achieve. Like when I think about the things that would be most painful and therefore most necessary for me to write about. Would you write actually about your childhood or is that less interesting than your adulthood? I think it's really hard to write about childhood in a compelling way, but you also kind of can't avoid it. You know, part of the problem is that I don't, and this is another way that I feel like I, I, I'm different than the way, you know, the no, than a good novelist is that I just don't remember that much about my childhood. I feel like it's this, it's this submerged continent that I don't have access to. Do you, have you, you don't ever, you've never felt that way? Uh, no, it's funny because sometimes I don't know how much I don't remember. My brother has told me that he just thinks he blocked out a lot of childhood. I mean, it's not like we had some traumatic childhood or something. I mean, it wasn't great, but I hated being a child. All I wanted to do was be an adult. So I spent a lot of my childhood sort of like, you know, looking in the mirror, imitating being adult. Like I, my childhood just seems like a lot of cringe. And I don't, I'm, I'm very, my revisionist history is very uncharitable toward myself. So I, I have to work against that. If, if I'm writing about it, I have to like not self-flagellate as much as I might like to. Right. Yeah. I kind of feel like who would be interested in that little punk? But that you just got done saying that people are interested that you, you have to present something that's other than what on the surface seems like it has to be interesting. But the ego thing. That's yeah. But the uh, so do you do you think that you have like a harder time with your ego than the average person? I don't think I have a harder time than the average writer. Um, I'm not sure about the average person. I mean, yeah, you know, in some ways, this is a lot of what Excellent Sheep was also about. The book about, you know, high achieving college students. It's, I mean, the great text for this is the drama of the gifted child, which is just an amazing book. It just blew me away when I finally read it. It's that, that hunger that gets implanted in you for, it's this megalomania that gets implanted in you by these parents whose love is conditional on high achievement. And so you have these fantasies of like being the most famous writer or the most famous person or the most significant human being in the world. And, and that's nuts. And so you start from there and then you're, and you're living this life that's, you know, sort of, I want to write about being a, like a semi-mediocrity, about being like an A minus. I feel like I'm an A minus kind of, a minus slash B plus kind of talent and achievement. So I'm not a failure. It would be ridiculous to claim that I'm a failure, but I haven't achieved, will never achieve the kind of success that I once fantasized about. And ultimately that's because, you know, you really have to be incredibly talented, let's say a genius. And, and I'm not. And that I think is the hardest thing, harder, at least for me, then acknowledging mistakes or regrets or choices or whatever is just like, you just don't have it in you to begin with. Does this make sense? 
Totally. But do you think you have to be a genius or do you think you just have to work harder than you think you have worked? Because there are plenty of people who are not geniuses, we know this, who have achieved greatness because they just keep at it. And they, ha- they seem to have a higher tolerance for their own inherent mediocrity than you or I might in ourselves. They've achieved greatness. They haven't just ex- achieved great success. Okay. Well, okay. I guess there's a difference there. Um, okay. But greatness is, is sort of subjective. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, I can think of like musicians, you know, there are musicians that are just very mediocre, you know, basically sort of bland, but it's been decided that they are groundbreaking or they are important. And I think that's true in every genre, probably. It's easier for me to think of musicians, but yeah, okay. But I, you're right. A difference between great success and greatness. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not who I'm jealous about. It's like the person who by, whether it's hard work or schmoozing or being in the right place at the right time has managed to be successful in the sense of status and wealth and even awards. Because there are plenty of people you look at and you're like, you know, they actually are crap. And maybe some people believe they're really good, but I have no jealousy of them because I, I'm talking about the people who, you know, who really, uh, who, who you look, you know, it's like they're, I mean, hats off, you know, and why, okay, maybe I didn't work hard enough. But like I said, it's, it's easier to say that. At least for me, it's easier to say that, than to say, I just don't have that kind of soul, you know, that kind of uh, endowment that's rare. And, and it makes me feel diminished to say that. But I think it's important to be able to come to terms with that. Listen, I think it's not just the circumstances that I described. It's also about, you know, being 56 and realizing or feeling in a way that wasn't true even when I was 46, that I have a finite number of years left. And if I don't do the things that I want to do now, if I don't maximize that now, even at the expense of some modicum of success, then there isn't going to be another chance. So fuck it. Well, that's a great place to end this conversation. Fuck it. I think that's a great place to end. (laughs) Fuck it. Uh, Well, thank you for talking with me. And thank you for uh, coming back on the podcast. I'm really glad you found the the podcast world. And um, I love your writing and I I love talking with you. So um, good luck with everything coming up. Congratulations on the the new book. I really hope people people read it because it's... um, you know, it's writing as it should be. It's real Thank writing. Thank you, Megan. This so, was really fun. All right. Thanks. That was my conversation with William Derezowitz. He is the author of the best-selling book, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. He spoke with me about his previous book, the Death of the Artist, on the November 9th, 2020 edition of this podcast. His new book, The End of Solitude, was just published. This is The Unspeakable Podcast, now on Substack, as I have told you too many times already. It's also everywhere you normally get your podcasts. Nothing has changed in that regard. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. Please also check out my new podcast, my additional podcast with Sarah Hader, 
a special place in hell. That is on Substack and also everywhere else. Please consider quitting your job or abandoning your family so you can listen to all these podcasts. I'll be back next week and every week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.